turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 36 through 38 and considering a true standard. John 13, verses 36 through 38. Give attention to God's holy word. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening seeking to commune with you seeking to be fed by you from your word. We pray now that you would bless this time of preaching by your spirit, that it would be edifying to us, glorifying to you and to your son, and in all things, advancing the cause of God in our generation. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the most important questions for us to ask ourselves is, what is the measure of our love to Christ? Now, there's, there's various ways to measure that. There's various ways that in the history of the church, that question has been answered. At, at one time in the ancient church, there was a, a real problem that they had. Uh, and that problem was of such a magnitude that the, the name for that problem has become a, uh, a, a common phrase that we use today to, to analyze people's behavior patterns. Now, in the ancient church, you know some of the background, I hope, that uh, they didn't have it very easy. As we're going to learn in the book of Hebrews, to be a Christian back then meant oftentimes to lose your family, to lose your home, and in many cases, to lose your life for the sake of Christ. Now, out of the fires of persecution, the, the, the church was strengthened, she was built up. The Lord used the blood of the martyrs to be the seed of the church. But there was a problem that happened in that environment. You see, with all these great stories of the martyrs, with all these heroic tales of daring do for the Lord Jesus, facing the lions and facing the Romans, it began to be assumed that if you really loved Christ, you would die for Christ. That the measure of your love to Christ was how willing were you to die. That became the standard in some parts of the ancient church. And, of course, the pastors and the fathers had to correct this. It became known as a martyr's complex. People were so infested with this idea that they thought, if I'm going to show my love to Christ, I have to go and die for him. That's how much I love Christ. 
Today, we uh, perhaps have different standards. Today, uh, I think many of us think to truly love Christ doesn't mean you have to die for him, perhaps, but it does mean you have to preach for him. Some, some may think that in order to be a, a Christian that really loves Jesus, you should be sharing the gospel all the time. You need to go to far-off lands and preach. You need to go to the street corner and preach. The measure of your love to Christ is how willing are you not to die for Christ, but at least to be embarrassed for Christ wherever you may find yourself. It's very similar to the martyr's complex. We might call it the missionary complex. In fact, I know an individual, none of you know this man, so it's, don't try and figure out who it is. But I know an individual in Georgia. For, uh, you know, we know the family through connections, and this, this gentleman had this idea in his mind that if I really love Jesus, I need to be in Africa preaching the gospel. So he ups and goes to Africa and preaches the gospel. And he does some good there for about a month or two. All the while, while he's in Africa, he has a household full of kids back home in Georgia. And so this mindset can really get into our minds and affect us into making the wrong decisions about uh, how do we know if we love Christ? What is the standard of our love to Christ? You know, in the Reformation period, it was thought that if you really loved Jesus, you'd become a monk or you'd become a priest of some kind. And those were the ones that really loved Jesus. The rest of you peasants can just trust us to bless you because we love him so much. In our day, this is, there's another way that this manifests itself as well. It can be very easy to think that unless you become a minister or an officer in the church, you must not really love Christ. You must not really be serving Christ. Now, I, I go through all of this. It may, you may be wondering, how does this relate to Peter's denial? I'm going through all this to set the table for us because what this passage is about, it is about Peter misunderstanding how to love Christ. It's Peter operating with a bad standard for his love to Christ. Now, in many ways, uh, Peter is one of my favorite characters in the Gospels because I see a lot of Peter in myself. And what Peter's mistake is in this passage that we're going to learn and what we're warned against in the example of Peter is not to think too highly of ourselves, but to humbly follow the direction Christ gives us in his word. We are not to think too highly of ourselves but to humbly follow the direction Christ gives us in his word. Now, this is a famous episode in the gospel history. The betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter are the two tragic events that surround the cross. And I believe that the way John records it for us, he, he wants us to learn this very important lesson that we must follow the direction of Christ in his word. That is the true standard of our love to Christ. And it's very interesting the way John does it for us. 
We're going to notice two things in this passage. Uh, in this passage, verse thirty-six, there is a simple question, and verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight, a searching answer. You see, what we're really seeing here is is the Lord Jesus drawing Peter out through his question and answer in this passage. Now, technically, there are two questions and two answers in this, but ultimately, there's one major question and one major answer that Christ is driving towards. And so we have a simple question followed by a searching answer. Remember the context? Christ has just told them that he is getting ready to leave. He is departing from their presence. The physical manifestation of glory is going to be taken away from them, crucified on the cross, resurrect, ascend back up to his father where he came from. Christ has left them with instructions, however. He doesn't just abandon the disciples. He says, I'm going to be taken away. You can't go where I'm going, just as I said to the Jews. Love one another. That's what I want you to do. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, it's in this context, Christ has just told this to the disciples, that Peter now asks this question. You've got to understand the context of Peter's question because there's an indication in the very question that he asks that he's not content with following the Lord's instructions. The Lord's instruction was, love one another as I have loved you. You can't go where I'm going. All you need to do right now is love one another as I have loved you. And then Peter responds, but where are you going? What's interesting about this is in verse 33, Christ has already told them. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now, I say to you. Part of what's going on here at the the level of the questions and the language, the place that Christ is going is a place that Peter cannot go. That's where Christ is going. At a rhetorical level. Now, if we drill a little bit further down, we know that where Christ is going is the cross. He's getting ready to be crucified. The the opening line of the previous passage, verse 30, remember we looked at this last week, he says, uh, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. This is on the occasion of Judas leaving. When Judas leaves, the betrayal is going to happen, and that's going to set all the dominoes in motion to bring Christ right to the cross where nobody else can go except the Lord Jesus Christ. Other passages that uh, deal with this, skipping back into verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered and said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Skipping down to verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, 
glorify your name. We're on the verge of the cross, and Christ is about to be glorified. And he tells the disciples very gently, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then Peter says, where are you going? There's two problems here with Peter's question. One, at least at this point, there's a little bit of presumption on his part, perhaps. This would be equivalent to, let's say, you're talking to your young children. And there, there comes a time when you're talking to young children that you have to say, you need to let mommy and daddy talk right now. You just, that's all you need to know. Go play with your books. Just, just leave the room right now and let mommy and daddy talk. What are you talking about? Let mommy and daddy talk. You know, that's kind of what's going on here. So there may be a bit of presumption and not listening to what Christ is saying. But there is also spiritual hard-heartedness on Peter's part. Now, let me say this before we, you know, criticize Peter too much. It's pretty evident, and a lot of the commentators say, Peter is really the spokesman of of all uh, 11 at this point. He's the spokesman of all the 11. So it's not just Peter. All the 11 are probably in full agreement with him. There's a spiritual darkness on Peter's part, because as I just read some of these parallel passages leading up to this point, should be fairly obvious where Christ is going. Christ has been teaching about his death and resurrection since at least half of his ministry. After the Mount of Transfiguration, he begins to teach openly about his crucifixion that's coming. The disciples have been with him this whole time. Christ is telling them, we've just had the Passover. Judas is betraying me. I'm going somewhere. You can't follow me. Love one another. It's going to be okay. Lord, where are you going? And so Peter should have known where Christ is going and that he cannot follow him. Well, Christ, in answer to this question, at least at this stage, answers him still very gently and still very compassionately. Notice how Christ answers Peter's question. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Now, Christ is very tender with Peter. He knows that in Peter's question, it comes from a heart of love and devotion to Christ. Peter is foolish in many ways, but he's an honest fool throughout all of it. He he has no guile, and he simply wants to be with his Lord. Christ understands this. He latches on to the good in Peter's question, and he answers him very compassionately and repeats himself and expands his answer a little bit. He says, You cannot go with me right now. For at this point, you need to be patient and not try to follow me. And then he says, but you shall follow me afterward. A couple of things to learn just from this exchange in verse 36. It's a simple question, but there's a lot going on with this question. First, I like the way uh, one of the Scottish poets I believe it was George Herbert said, our next duty is the shortest path for us. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he meant when, if you're in a position of life and, and you don't know what's going on in your life, you're not sure what the Lord might be doing, you want to, like Peter, 
ask the Lord, where are you? Where are you going? Can, can I come and see you? What's happening? Well, what George Herbert is saying is that when you're in the midst of a confusing time in life, the next duty that's before you is the shortest path forward. The, the easiest thing to do is your duty where you are. Life may be upended for you, and so what should you do? Pray. Love your neighbor. Serve the Lord. As Christ told the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. I'm going somewhere you can't follow. Love one another as I have loved you. This is very helpful for us, brothers and sisters. It's not important for us to understand the causes and the effects of what may be going on in our lives right now. It's not important for us to understand everything that the Lord is doing. But it is important for us to follow the Lord's directions in his word. Look at what, how Peter, interestingly, in his own letter, counsels us. This is 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Uh, that may be the wrong reference, pardon me. First Peter four, forgive me. First Peter four verse seven. First Peter 4, verse 7, Peter is speaking about all of the judgments and the false prophets that have been risen in his day and the day this letter is written. And he says in summary, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> you want eschatology? You're living in eschatology. The end of all things is at hand right now. So what should you do? Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love one for another. Don't need to panic. Don't need to lose your heads. Pray and love each other. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. It's very simple and easy and straightforward piety. In the midst of the end of all things. The, the, the world and the creation is coming crashing down around you. What are we supposed to do? Pray and love each other. Have meals. Invite people over for a game night. Have fervent love, one for another. And so in Peter's example in John, Peter fails to do this at that time. He, he asks questions. He wants to press the Lord Jesus further about what he's doing. Christ gives him a simple, gentle answer. This is not enough for Peter. And now Peter repeats the question in verses 37 through 38, and Christ is then going to give him a very searching answer and expose what's really going on with Peter. Verse 37, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. 
Well, now the cat's out of the bag. You see, Christ has already told Peter where he's going. He's already, told, he's already at least implicitly said why you can't come with me. I'm dying a death that nobody else can die. And he's already told Peter, this is what you need to do. If you love me and you want to do what is pleasing in my sight, love your brothers, love one another. But now Peter, with his martyr's complex, we might call it, says, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Now there's two things here that all the commentators point out about Peter. First, for Peter to say this indicates pride. It indicates Peter's self-reliant pride. At this point, though he loves the Lord Jesus, and at no point do we question Peter really does love the Lord Jesus, Peter's problem is that his standard of how to love Jesus is self-reliant pride. Notice that he says to Christ, I love you so much, I want to be with you even right now. I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. And so Peter is swelled up with this pride. Many times, myself, and perhaps yourself, have been filled up with this kind of pride, this kind of self-reliant pride that glories in what it must mean to die for Jesus. I can go and be a martyr for Christ. I will lay down my life for Christ. I can do it because I love him. That's what Peter's doing right here. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters. Paul the Apostle says in the Corinthian letter, let everyone who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Peter is not taking heed, and he's gone so far as to say he's ready to lay down his life for the Lord Jesus. The second thing we notice, in his self-reliant pride, there is a blind zeal. There is an overabundant blind zeal to die for Jesus. Now, on the one hand, we know that zeal is a good thing. Blind zeal, however, is a very dangerous thing, but it can also be a very burdensome thing. Remember what Christ told them he wants them to do. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Christ didn't command them to go cast themselves into the arms of the Pharisees and to fling themselves upon the cross and to do all these great and bloody, painful, horrible things for Christ. He said, just love one another. That's all you have to do. You don't have to die for me. I'm not requiring you to be a martyr for my cause. I'm not requiring you to be a missionary for my cause. I'm simply requiring of you to love as I have loved. There's a lot of liberty in this, brothers and sisters. It's, this is part of the liberty that uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation brought to us. Perhaps you're aware of uh, Martin Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Part of what that meant was in, in the Roman Catholic period, 
it was the monks and the priests who were looked at as the really holy ones. The monks and the priests were looked at as the ones who were closest to God. They were the ones who loved Christ more than the common people. And so the temptation was for the common people to think that if I love Christ, I have to be a monk, I have to become a priest. And what Martin Luther did in rediscovering the gospel is he discovered that no, anyone who believes in Christ is accepted by God no matter what his position in society is. And then he went so far as to say, the mother who changes diapers and the cobbler who makes shoes does more for the kingdom than priests and monks. Those who simply love their neighbor where God has put them, in light of the finished work of Christ, are doing more things that are pleasing to Christ than all the martyrs on all the funeral pyres throughout all history. But Peter is, is blinded by his zeal. Peter is rushing headlong into something because he does not pay attention to the Lord's word. Brothers and sisters, at this point, I want to encourage you, as I've encouraged myself over the past week, all that Christ requires of you at this time is to love him and love his people. He's not requiring you to die. He's not requiring you to throw your life away the way Peter did, or at least tried to. He's only requiring you with the things that are in front of you to glorify him in whatever you do. Now, you may have to die for Christ. The Lord may call you to be a missionary. The Lord may want you to become a, a minister or an officer in his church. He might do those things. But he's not requiring it of you to be pleasing in his sight. He's only requiring of you to follow his word and not rely on your own zeal. Well, this, this comes out, and now Christ sort of has Peter to, dead to rights here. Christ answers and gives him a searching answer at Peter's admission. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? This question implies that Peter does not know what he's talking about. And oftentimes, this is the way it is when our zeal gets a hold of us. We have no idea what is required to die for Christ. And so Christ says to them, oh, really? You're going to die for me before I have even died for you and purchased the Holy Spirit by whose power alone you can die for me. Will you really lay down your life for me? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Christ, because he recognizes Peter's pride, or I should say because Peter's proud expression has now come to the surface, Christ now answers him in a very searching manner to humble his pride. See, before, you, you could have said that Peter was just eager to be with his Lord because he loved his Lord. But through this question and answer process, Peter's pride now comes to the surface and Christ deals with it directly. He says, you think you're going to die for me? Okay, let me tell you something. Most assuredly, just as assuredly as I'm going to die for sin, 
you will deny me three times before the rooster crows the very next morning. Now understand why Christ is doing this. Christ is humbling Peter's pride not to destroy Peter. He's humbling Peter's pride so that Peter can see himself for what he truly is. At this point, Christ has told him, you can't go where I'm going, but I want to go with you. You need to stay here and love your brothers, but I would lay down my life for you. And so Christ says, you're not listening to the teaching. I have to bring you to a place where you will experience what you are really like. And so he brings him to this place for Peter's good to humble him so that he can then use him truly in his kingdom. You know, one of the other gospel accounts records Peter's denial at greater length. And it talks about Christ speaking to Peter and telling Peter, Satan has requested you to sift you as wheat. And then Christ's answer to that is, but I have prayed for you. And when you, Peter, are established, when you are reestablished, go and strengthen your brethren. You see, Peter was not only proud right here, Peter is not only being exposed by the Lord, but Satan is also on Peter's heels to sift him like wheat and perhaps get him to deny the Lord fully and finally. But the preventative is that Christ has prayed for him. Christ's desire in this denial is not Peter's destruction. It is ultimately Peter's salvation. A couple of things to notice from this to edify ourselves with. First, maybe Christ is calling you to be a minister for him. Maybe he's calling you to be a martyr for him. Maybe he wants you to serve him in ways you cannot imagine right now. Understand that those who serve Christ go through incredible periods of suffering and humiliation at the hand of Christ. Peter is the rock upon which the church will be built. Not in the Roman Catholic sense. In the sense that he was the first sort of pastor of the church. He was the first preacher of the New Testament church. He's the first one at Pentecost to preach. And Christ, because he's going to use him, has to humble him through this very searching answer. He has to bring him low so that Christ, by his grace, can build him up. Do you want to do great things for Christ? Pray that he would give you the grace to do it. But understand, those whom Christ uses, Christ will humble, just as he does with Peter. Secondly, Remember what Christ wants. Christ wants your love and he wants your obedience to his word. He wants your sincere, heartfelt obedience to what he has commanded. He, he is not impressed if you shed gallons and buckets and barrels of blood for him. He is not impressed if you have all knowledge and can understand all mysteries. He's not impressed if you give away all of your gold to feed the poor, even as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. 
He is not impressed. He is impressed with love for him and obedience to his commandments. We're going to see this later on in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the standard of our love to Christ. Not our zeal, not our self-reliant pride, and not our delusions of martyrdom and grandeur that Peter was deluded with here. We know that Christ was faithful to his word if you turn to John 21. And we know that Christ did not intend to destroy Peter, but he intended to humble him. John 21, verse 15, Peter is restored to his office after his denial. And notice how Peter is restored. John 21, 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, I know that you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? You know why Jesus does it three times? Peter denied him three times. And Christ is restoring him, and he said to him, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Very interesting, isn't it? When Christ restores Peter after his denial, he restores him and he gives him the most basic command. He gives him the command that Peter's ministry began with. Follow me. That's all Christ requires of you. That's the measure of your love to Christ. Not your zeal, not whatever amazing deeds you can do, but it's how much you keep his commandments and do you follow him even as he leads us. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the example of Peter who is used in so many ways to build up your church through his preaching and his letters, but also through his example in the Gospels. We pray, Lord, that you would humble us so that we would not be self-reliant, blindly led by our zeal to promise things that we cannot do and to find ourselves denying you, heaven forbid. We pray that you would help us to keep your commandments and to walk with you day by day. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.